Hey everybody, it's Barry. I just wanted to let you know before this episode played that it has enormous significance to me. It's something very, very special, very heartfelt, and very emotional. And it came at a time in my life that was very, very challenging. And I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I do. Thanks. Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. I was standing in the wings and Nina Simone was standing backstage and she said, well, you getting ready to go out there, huh? She said, I want you to do me one favor. I said, what's that? She said, when you go out there, go out there knowing you're not opening this show. You're closing it. When you walk out on that stage, it's yours. Whoever comes after you, it will be theirs. But when you're out there, it is your stage. And make it as difficult as you possibly can for anybody to walk out on that stage when you come off of it. something for the first time and that is the loss of my mother Barbara Muriel Katz and this podcast has become a really special thing for me because for all of you all over the world who've been so incredibly supportive and have called me and written me and emailed me and Facebooked me and FedExed me and messengered me. 
all these incredibly kind words. I thought it appropriate for this particular podcast featuring somebody who my mother was very knowledgeable of and loved her music. And I'm talking about Dionne Warwick. I thought I'd just say a few words and let you know that I am uh, dedicating this podcast, my mom. And there's so many things that she brought to me that have shaped me who I am today. And I am very grateful for that. And she really loved me and set an example for me of not only how to be loved, but how to give to other people and how to love other people. And there's so many stories that I could tell about my mom because growing up without a father, it was very challenging, but I never felt that I didn't have a father, that my mom was selfless and she gave of herself to me. And every time I came home, there was a meal on the table. Even if it was two o'clock in the morning, there was something hot that she was ready to feed me and make everything all right. Any problem I had, she was there in her own unique way. And it was incredible how accessible she was, knowing that there were no cell phones, no emails, no texts. But it seemed like every time I called home, my mom was there. And I remember one time I bought this crazy broken down car that I thought was a good deal. And I remember going on the Massachusetts Turnpike and having it break down on the Turnpike and me walking about a mile to a payphone and assessing my situation and calling that home number, which I can't believe I remember to this day. And lo and behold, as always happened, my mom picked up. I told her what happened. I told her where I was. And she came. And she drove up behind my car on the Massachusetts Turnpike with cars speeding by at 60, 75 miles an hour in the main lane as we were far on the breakdown lane. And she got out of her car, which was a... 1973 red Camaro she closed the door and she had a bag in her hand and she came around and hugged me and kissed me on the cheek and said I love you son before we do anything I know you might be hungry why don't we have some lunch and on the hood of this broken down car I think it was a Carmen Ghia she laid down the tablecloth and all these plates of china and silverware and a thermos. And she served lunch on top of the hood of the Carmen Ghia. And before she left, she called a tow truck. So right as we were finishing lunch, it came took the car away, probably the last time I ever saw the car. And then we drove back home together. And as I sit here and drink constant comment tea, which is was her favorite tea that she used to have in the house all the time in a tin box, and look out at this beautiful skyline in Los Angeles, I think to myself, what a beautiful life it is when you have somebody like my mom to share it with.
I love you, Mom. Well, you came and opened me And now there's so much more I see And so by the way I thank you Oh, and then For the times when we Three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Uh, undeniable. You fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. All right. Take me back to the first song that was up for a Grammy award. And, uh, oh and goodness. you go. Do you know the way to San Jose? <laughs> <laughs> Not one of my favorite I was gonna ask. I was going to ask you about this because this is something that happens sometimes with people. And I personally, not to say that I could ever, I'm like a pinhead. I'm like a speck of dust on the carpet compared to your career. But sometimes I'll be working on a television show that I'm executive producing or something. And I'll be like, what am I doing? People are watching this. They're, you know, they're, they're liking it. But, and that's the thing about all entertainment. You know, there's these songs that you have or these, these television shows that are on the air and they're huge hits. And you're like, am I missing something? (laughs) And was it, was it because I had heard that you didn't like that song. It's so true. It still is true. So did it sting a little bit knowing that you're, because I, I would imagine winning your first Grammy is probably one of your proudest moments, but it must be a paradox knowing that you're winning it and you're up there and putting on the smile saying, hey, I love this song. And then no, I never said that. <laughs> I never said that. You know, in fact, um, when when the song was brought to me, I you know, I just kept saying, I don't want to sing this song. <laughs> and... and Hal finally said, well, why don't you want to sing this song? I said, Hal, I, I really don't think you wrote this song. And he looked at me and said, of course I wrote this song. <laughs> I said, no, I mean, I mean, let's listen to some of the lyrics that you've written for me to sing. You know, walk on by and anyone who had a heart. And, I mean, and you got me saying, whoa, 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 whoa. No, no, no. You could not have written that. And then he explained to me his affinity 
Fort San Jose, that he was stationed there. I fell in love with it. And because I loved him so much, I said, okay, I'm going to sing this song just for you, not for me. And as I jokingly say, but Matt, I cried all the way to the bank. (laughs) 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 So that's San Jose. And so what was the feeling you had? You're in, you know, you're in an audience in an auditorium and you're sitting there with other people who are nominated. Were you saying to yourself, there's no way in hell this song is going to win a Grammy? <laughs> exactly. It's so true. I said, you know, it's like, okay, who's going to walk around? Whoa, 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 whoa. And when they called my name, it was like, oh, my God. I just won a Grammy. I, I, that's got to be, I don't know what it is now, but I know then, one of the most exciting moments. I truly believe that can happen to any one of my peers or anyone else that was nominated for a Grammy. They, they meaning my peers, those who have the power to vote, say, You're the best this year. We love what you did this year. And we're going to reward you for that. And knowing that the industry awarded me this honor is a very exciting time. Very exciting. You were performing during the most tumultuous time in our history. So here you are, you're writing music, you're performing music, you're putting out music during the time of our nation in 63 when Kennedy was assassinated, 68 when Martin Luther King King and Robert Kennedy were assassinated. How did you change as a person and how did your music change during those times? I imagine you're putting out things for people in a different way who have lost their innocence. And I always say, you know, everybody can point to a time where they lost their innocence Mm -hmm. and they became a man or a woman. And it's not, I'm not talking about losing your virginity. I'm talking about something that happened in your life that blew a hole through you, Mm -hmm. that made you the artist that you really are today. So I wanted to ask you about performing that time, but I also wanted to ask you, was there something in your life that really crushed you? You realized I'm a you know, I'm a woman now and I'm not a girl anymore. I've I've seen this happen and now I've gotta go to the next level in my life. That period from sixty three through the early seventies even. We're dark periods, you know. I think what really gave me uh, the the strength and the, the fortitude to to continue to do and bring messages because we are messengers. Well, I, and, and I always felt you were a messenger for the positive. Absolutely, and. Because, as I said earlier on, and well, we're doing our talk here, Hal David had one of the most prolific lyricists. He had the ability to take the most unkind things that were going on in the world and was able to put almost a positive spin on it. And I was fortunate enough to be the one that, that was able to give it to your ears. Um, during those periods, there were songs like What the World Needs Now is Love, The Windows of the World, I Say a Little Prayer for You. These were all songs that were geared to uplift people. It was during also the Vietnam War was when I Say a Little Prayer was written which gave people hope, inspired them to believe that there were that that had to come to an end 
and that our babies would be coming home. Um, the unfortunate thing was how they were treated once they got home, but at least they were home. And uh, we're still, I still, in fact, feel that we still haven't done enough for those particular soldiers, you know, men and women that truly were fighting for something they didn't even understand what they were fighting for, nor did we, you know, yet they were over there doing it. Uh, no respect, no, I applaud you, I embrace you, I'm gonna, whatever it is that you need done, we must do for you. I don't think that that kind of an attitude happened until well after that war was over. I mean, really well after. We still I mean, have these these men and women sleeping on the trellises and in the street, and it, it's just an injustice. It really is a true injustice. Um, I never understood how we could do that. I mean, my grandfather, who was a minister, my dad's father, he always told told us, you know, we did Sunday school and, and all that good stuff. But at that tender age of 9 and 10 and 11, he pounded into us that we are all here, every single human being. We're all here to be of service to each other. I care what you do or who you are. That's why we're here. We're human beings, and we should be treating each other in that fashion. And that's what I grew up with, and that's what I carry with me. As far as I'm concerned, everybody deserves that right. Everybody. So segregation and discrimination, I always thought and still do think of it as the most stupid thing that exists today. And here you were in a position where your music was crossing over. Which is the funniest thing in the world for me. What is crossing over? Music is music. There are only eight notes in a scale, Okay. I guess I'll, I'll rephrase that question. <laughs> what I mean is that from that club in Miami, yeah, in that hotel, which was a uh, basically an all-black audience. Yes, I don't know how you word it, so I, I'm I'll let you word it. But what was the first show you did where you looked out in the crowd and you're like, "Wow, this is uh, this is a little bit different than uh, than it's been in the past." When was that, and what was the performance when you noticed that? Hey, I guess I'm not just performing for all black audiences. I guess um, my tours, my first tours, um, you know, though the the majority of the, the so-called nightclubs were primarily geared toward, towards a black audience. But then when I did my first real tour, I uh, was at a Henry Wynn tour. And and I'm still trying to figure out what, what the connotation is of Chitlin Circuit. I have no clue as to what that is. Uh, because Sam Cooke was the first tour I did, he headlined. And on that tour was the Shirelles, the Orlans, uh, Otis Redding, about eight or ten acts on that tour. And we, we were playing places that were primarily places that only white people used to go to. And in fact, I remember vividly one of the first places was in South Carolina. And it was the Coliseum. We were sitting on the bus. And finally we all went inside to do a sound check and set up. And we no it was quite noticeable that one side was seating and the stage was 
split down the middle, and one side on the other side was standing. The seated side were for white people, and the standing side were for black people. And Sam said to me, because he knew me from gospel, when he was at the Soul Stairs, he and my mom's group and and, and the Soul Stairs uh, were primarily on, they did a lot of uh, gospel programs together, so I knew who he was. And he, he said to me, now I want you to be a good girl. I said, what do you mean be a good girl? He said, I don't want you to turn your back on the white people. I said, why not? He said, because I want you to play both sides. I said, okay, I can do that. And I did, you know, because both sides had bought my records. So it, it made all the sense in the world to me not to turn my back on anybody. So what I did was I played to the orchestra straight ahead. You got one side of me and you got one side of me. So everybody got a piece of me. <laughs> did you ever like do a show with a group of people like that, many artists? And was there a point in time where, because in, in, you know, I've come from the comedy world. What's really fascinating in the comedy world, sometimes you can, like, comedians go on one after the other, and somebody will go on, like, let's say, fifth out of ten people, and they'll get, like, a standing ovation, and all of a sudden, the show's over. Yeah. Like, I interviewed Louis Anderson, yeah. and he talked about the HBO Young Comedian special with Rodney Dangerfield, mm -hmm. and how Rodney asked him to close the show. I want, Louis, I want you to close the show. I want you to headline the show. There was, like, eight people. Mm -hmm. And he was so excited until Sam Kinison went on fourth, and he said, <laughs> he said that, the, the show was over mm -hmm. and he went out on the street and he just walked around thinking okay Louis your content is great your material is great it always works you're going to do well you're going to get them to be where you are it doesn't matter what he did mm -hmm. and he came back in and he did an amazing show it wasn't the same as Sam but he did an amazing show were there times when you'd go on like in the middle of these shows and you'd get off stage and the person going after you would be like, God, could you leave something for me? <laughs> you know what? No. Um, my first time at the Apollo Theater, I'll never forget it. Um, I, was, I was nervous as a kitten. I, you know, the Apollo's reputation precedes it. And that is where that saying comes from. If you can make it at the Apollo, you can make it anywhere in this entire world. I don't care where it is. And I was standing in the wings, and Nina Simone was standing backstage, and she, she said, hello, little girl. And I turned around and said, oh, my God, Nina Simone. I said, hi. <laughs> and she said, well, you getting ready to go out there, huh? I said, yeah, I am. She said, I want you to do me one favor. I said, what's that? She said, when you go out there, go out there knowing you're not opening this show. You're closing it. I said, but I am opening it. She said, no, you're closing it. When you walk out on that stage, it's yours. Whoever comes after you, it will be theirs. But when you're out there, it is your stage. And make it as difficult as you possibly can for anybody to walk out on that stage when you come off of it. I've never forgotten that. And that's what I do. You get the very best that I have to give to you. And I want anybody to think they can come on after me. Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my Blueprint for Success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one -on -one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. 
Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. One, Uno, siete, dos, two, three, son, cuatro, five, cinco, six, six degrees of separation. I guess what I'm going to do now, if you'll oblige me, is I'm going to mention some names. Okay. And just tell me the first thing that comes to your mind, anything, because you've worked with so many different people mm -hmm. and whatever you feel it might be a short, quick story. It might be anything, but just... Just something. Sure. Stevie Wonder. One of my children. <laughs> I've known Stevie since he's nine years old. And um, there is a funny story with him. The Shirelles, Stevie, and myself were the three Americans to perform at the Olympia Theater on a show called Ladles de June, The Idols of the Young. And... Um, Stevie was there with his mommy and a tutor, and we were backstage, and the Shirelles hated, literally hated, a dress of mine. It was a red dress that I happened to love, and they just thought that was the ugliest dress they had seen in their lives, and they begged me, don't wear that dress, please don't wear that dress. And I said, I don't want to wear my dress, I love my dress. Well, they got Stevie to say to me, because I came out of the dressing room with my little red dress on. He said, Dion, I don't like that red dress. <laughs> I, I mean, see, he scared me. I thought, I said, you can see. He said, no, but I don't like that dress on you. <laughs> I took that dress off and never wore it again. <laughs> That's my Stevie Wonder. Little Stevie Wonder. So, they, so you let him get to you. He got to me. <laughs> and then I found out how he knew of it. You know, hey, that's, it was TV. And he's still a little devil. Still is. Elton John. Love him to death. Elton is probably one of the most giving, caring people I know. Um, his heart is as big as this room. That's, and, he, and he lets you know it. He doesn't hide it. That's, I think, what I adore about him more than anything else. A dear friend. Quincy Jones. Quincy Jones I met, ironically, through my doctor, Dr. Nichols. Um, and God rest you too, Dr. Nick. He and Quincy were like this. In fact, they almost looked like they were twins. They were very dear friends and happened to meet Quincy before I even got into the industry. So uh, that became a part of our reiterating our relationship once I did get into the industry. And he used to call me Little Queen. And he still does. Michael Jackson. Another one of my babies. I love him to death. And that's another feisty little thing. I remember when uh, they first came to audition for Barry. And I happened to be at the audition. Barry invited a lot of people to come up to this little house he had in the hills. And the Jackson 5. Barry, you say Barry. Barry Gordy. Barry Gordy, of yeah. course. I'm sorry. That's okay. And um, at that audition... This little bitty thing came and sat down next to me. He said, and who are you? <laughs> Just like that. I said, well, who are you? <laughs> he said, I'm Michael Jackson. I said, well, I'm Dion Warwick. <laughs> he said, oh, okay. I said, what are you doing here? He said, I'm here to sing. I said, sing what? He said, I'm going to sing a Jackie Wilson song. I said, yeah. I said, can you move like Jackie Wilson? He said, yes. I mean, he's just a little feisty little thing. And as in his growing years, he remained that wonderful little boy to me. Barry Manilow. Barry Manilow. 
brilliant musician, a friend. You know, this is the best part of this whole industry that I've been able to do that. Relationships, yes, everybody. I mean, really. Uh, make friends of the icons of, our, of my peers of the industry. And that goes beyond that, too. I mean, it's the people I've been able to say hello to and having them embrace me and, and protect me. It, I mean, I got to write another book about that. But at any rate, Barry is um, another generous person, one that um, has the ability to step outside of himself to be of service to someone else, as he did with me, um, producing my very first recordings for Arista. You know, I had very large trepidations about him having that ability being that he was his own producer, his own songwriter, and, and a recording artist. Could he turn that hat around and produce somebody outside of himself? Well, apparently he could. He proved that. Absolutely. Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan. <laughs> a very interesting man. He, um, look, he was a consummate... I always call him the the acting president, you know, um, and because I'm not a Republican, he he didn't resonate in that part of the political arena for me, but he was a very nice man. I mean, truly a very nice man, and um, I'm the one that got him to finally say the word AIDS because he skirted around that word. Oh, I mean, he, he just would not say it. And even after he appointed me the ambassador of health of the United States, he just refused to say the word. And I got him to say it during a press conference. I made him say it. And he, I don't think he ever forgave me for it, but that didn't matter. The fact is that, that he, as a president, had to address the issue. And uh, finally, I said, well, you know, President Reagan has made me your your only ambassador of health for the United States, and I am totally immersed in the fight against this devastating disease. What's, what's the disease called, President? Uh, 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 AIDS. I said, see, you can say it. It's called AIDS. And it's something we all have to combat, even you. Fantastic. Whitney Houston. My baby. She, um, what, what am I going to say about my family? Loved her, still love her, miss her desperately. She was the little girl I never had. Um, when she was a youngster, along with my two boys and my nephew and all the kids that were a part of my band, their families. Every summer they were on tour with me. Um, she was a little devil too, boy. She got everybody in trouble. Um, a voice that is yet to be even compared to. And again, she comes from that same Elka family that I do. And that apple did not fall far from the tree. Um... She lived as long as God wanted her to live. And um, where it was her life to do with what she wanted to do, how she wanted to do it, she was a grown-up. Um, she, by and large, she was really a good girl. She was a good little girl. She got caught up in, in an arena that was a little too big for her. And subsequent, it, it conquered her. That's what's heartfelt and fascinating about talking about this because you were caught up in the same business 
and you were able to combat the evil forces that were around you. Yeah, you know, I'll tell you something. My, my surroundings were completely different than Nippy's. Um, people like, uh, who I consider the ultimate icons of our industry, embraced me. Sammy Davis Jr., Nat King Cole, uh, Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, Ella Fitzgerald, Lena Horne, Diane Carroll, they all looked at me as a little girl. And they were doing what I wanted to do, where they were doing it. You know, I wanted to play the Sands Hotel, and I did. I wanted to uh, play the Diplomat Hotel in Hollywood, Florida, and I did. And it was all because they all just gave me the biggest embrace, individually and collectively, and basically treated me as as if I was their child, which I loved every second of you know, being allowed to be in a room with these icons and hear the conversations they were having with other people and just being exposed to that that echelon. Um, so my surroundings, completely different than Whitney's. Got it. A few more names. Diana Ross. Um, Diana... Actually, her name is Diane. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. I, I felt I did something wrong here. No, no, you didn't say anything wrong. She was given the name Diana by Barry. Barry decided that she was going to be the front of that Rolls Royce. Um, I know her as Diane, and that's what I call her. She is, um, I called, our glamour girl in the industry. And I mean, truly, the glamour girl. And still is. She's, you know, with the hair and the makeup and the, the gowns and the da 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 You know, she always had um, a flair. Um, and there was always this, this mystique with the two of us where everybody felt that we didn't like each other, we didn't know each other, we didn't, and yet she lived right around the corner from me. I'd see her almost every other day. We always were easy to talk to. Um, she was invited to any parties that I gave, as I was to any that she gave. Um, my children went to school together. So, and, and I think we finally came to reckon with it. She said, do you like me? I said, yeah, I like you. Do you like me? She said, yeah, I like you. I said, why do people think we don't like each other? I said, because they have nothing else to think about. Aretha Franklin. Riri and I grew up together, basically. She comes from a gospel background as well. I met her when she was 15, and I was 15. And she was singing a song called Never Grow Old before her father preached at programs that uh, she... She was at, and that met her and Mavis Staples, who we were all kind of in the same age group. And that's when we all met during our gospel years. Gladys Knight. My gal. That's my girlfriend. <laughs> that is my, one of my best friends. That's my sister. Truly my sister. She's acting now. She's doing anything she wants to do. <laughs> <laughs> and doing it very well. Awesome, awesome. So let's talk about Feel So Good, and let's talk about these collaborations with everybody from Neo to Jamie Foxx, Ziggy Marley, CeeLo Green, and of course, Gladys Knight. Talk about what this meant to you. I know your son, you know, working with family yeah. is so, so great. I hesitate to say anybody's name. I'm going to say uh, Damon Elliott, and you're going to say, no, no. I named him Damon. His real name was Dame. But I changed it to Damon for this no, album. No, I'm kidding. In fact, I didn't. Uh, David named him. His older brother named Got him. It. And and named him for 
one of his best friends in nursery school named Damon. <laughs> All the while I was carrying Damon, in fact. David said I was carrying kittens. <laughs> 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 on, this, on this album, what confuses me is not the concept, great concept, mm -hmm. that your son worked on and brought to you. Aren't you like a little anxious when somebody says to you, I want to do this song? Like, for instance, Cindy Lauper uh, wanted to do a message to Michael. When somebody comes to you and says that, after they make the call and you hang up, are you like, how are they going to be able to do message to Michael? <laughs> you know, like, are you a little anxious when you get into the studio wondering, are these people actually going to be able to pull it off? Oh, yeah. No, you know, I think the secret was and is they chose the song that they wanted to do because it was one of their favorite songs. Like and with Neo, was, a house is not a home. Exactly. That and I, I, I got to say that I did question him about that. I asked him, I said, are you sure you want to tackle this song? He said, yeah, I want to tackle it. And not only do I want to tackle it, I know I can do it. I mean, his whole persona was like, hey, <laughs> come on, girlfriend. <laughs> so I said, hey, all right. You feel com that comfortable? Here we go. So there was no anxiety, no stress. And you go in, and, and when you're doing a record like that, do you... Because you, you obviously don't know how much time you're going to need with, let's say, Jamie Foxx. Mm -hmm. You can set aside whatever time you want. Like you said early on in your career, hey, we do three records. We allot an hour each record. And mm -hmm. But when you're working with people who you haven't worked with before, is there a time limit or do you just go someplace and it's just like, is there any out time or is it like, hey, we're going in and however long it takes? That's exactly right. And I don't think that you can rush anybody's talent or how they feel or if they're ready at a certain time. When Jamie came to the studio to do... Um, Jamie Israel, Fox. Yes, Jamie Fox. Um, I asked him, I said, well, what song are you, are you thinking about? He says, Deja Vu. I said, okay, fine. And when he came to the studio, he listened to the track, and um, he said, okay, I'm ready. And he was ready. He went in, and we stood and looked at each other and did Deja Vu. And how, what's the shortest session there was on this album for a song and the longest one? Hmm. Like oh. you just you just went in and you'd like you you recorded this one thing and you finished the first take and you're like yeah okay I guess we got it exactly and uh, and well that's what happened with Gladys and me I mean even the the ad libs just happen that's not what we planned to do we didn't even know how we were going to divide the song up I just sing. <laughs> <laughs> and I, we just knew where I was supposed to come in and where she was supposed to come in and if there was a harmony to that and it just instinctively happened um, no you, I don't think you really could I could have put a time frame on any of the duets and literally I must say one or two takes and we, were, we, we had it Incredible. Um, talk a tiny bit about We Are the World. Oh, wow. What an event. That's exactly Because a lot of people was. don't know this about you, but you're an incredibly giving and charitable human being, and your performances probably, it wouldn't surprise me if the records and the things you've done have probably raised over a billion to three billion dollars in the, the charitable world, all the things you've been a part of. But talk about how that came together and how you were involved in it. And, and you know, this is, that, that, that is an amazing story because I was performing in Las Vegas at the Golden Nugget, I'll never forget. And um, Quincy called me. He said, LaQueen? I said, yeah. 
He said, um, you need to be in L.A. I said, I can't be in L.A. I'm in Las Vegas. He said, what are you doing there? I said, I'm working. <laughs> he said, where? I said, at the, the Golden Nugget. He said, oh, Steve. I said, yeah. He said, okay. Um, Steve Wynn was the Golden Steve Nugget Wynn, yes. And um, he says, okay, um, but I need you in Los Angeles tomorrow night. I said, do you realize it's Saturday night? <laughs> Ain't no way in the world you're going to let me out of here. He said, okay, don't worry about it. And apparently he spoke with Mr. Wynn. And Steve came backstage after my show. He says, my plane is out at McCarran. It's going to take you to Los Angeles. I've already found someone who's going to do your show tomorrow night. And uh, I've been told that you are desperately needed to be a part of something that Quincy Jones says you have to be. I said, he did it. <laughs> he really did it. So I got on the plane, went to Los Angeles, and that happened to also be the night of the American Music Awards, which is why all of those people were in Los Angeles at the same time, timing that we're in show business. That's what it is, timing. And it was, it was wonderful. First of all, I... Got to see people I haven't seen in ages, years. And got to meet some people I didn't know. Um, to be a part of something that was going to be so important to those folks in Africa. And know that I was a part of that, to be able to feed them and to to give to them something that they so desperately needed is um, it's really something you can't explain. It was one of those you had to be there moments. And you were there. One of the things I, I thought about when I first saw that recording is a very unusual thought that probably most people would never have thought of at the time of hearing such a beautiful song. Mm -hmm. The first thing that came through my mind was how did these people decide on the parts that they were going to play without somebody saying, no, I, I want that line there. No, no, I, that's not fair that they get three lines and I only get this one line here. Like, how, I, I don't even understand how that was possible. Quincy Jones designated everybody singing what they're going to sing. I mean, they thought it was the most unusual pairing with me and, and uh, Willie Nelson. That's right. You know, it was like, Willie Nelson? Yeah, okay. Cool. That's my <laughs> partner. <laughs> Tell me your Mount Rushmore of singers. Tell me the four stone faces oh, on the mountain. Oh, my goodness. Marvin Gaye. Marvin Gaye? Absolutely. That's one. Johnny Mathis. Johnny Mathis, number two. Ooh oh, it's hard. This is hard. I'll give you some alternates. Okay. Give me some. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't expecting it that way. All right. I'll go with one here. Um, I have to go with Michael Jackson. Yeah, he fit there. Very um, comfortably. I mean, there's just too many. I mean, I could go down the list. And because there are men on the mountain and there's yes. no women on the mountain, unfortunately. Right. And if there were, Gladys your face would be, be on there, there too. There. Well, Gladys would be there before me, as far as I'm concerned. But, I mean, you have Lionel Richie, you have C.V. Wonder, you have Johnny Mathis, Frank Sinatra, and Jamie Davis Jr. I mean, the list goes on and on. That's a hard thing to give up just for. You know, a lot of people ask this question of people outside the music business, and I've never asked this question before because I always thought like it was cliche or what. But when I sit across from you, I think it's a very valid question. What music is in your digital 
player? What is in there that your go-to song that makes you smile and makes you feel good? Or the song or the music of who is it? It's very easy. I listen to Brazilian music. I know you spent a lot of time in Brazil. Yes, I have, and I love it. And that's where, eventually, that's that's where I'm going to be for the rest of my life. But that's my smile, feel good music. And that's the music that I have on in my car and in my home. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you rallied upon it took the the punch or the the tough moment and turned it around to something special. <sighs> hmm. Have I had one? <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I guess, but it, but it became a positive for me. Um, when all of a sudden, I wasn't hearing me on the radio anymore. Um, there was a little thing called disco that came around. A young lady who subsequently became a very dear friend, Donna Summers, queen of disco. And I did not feel, and to this very day don't feel, that my listening audience would have allowed me to jump into that arena. That's not what they ever expected of me, nor I don't think I had the capability of doing that. Um, what it did, however, was it gave me an opportunity to have a family and to be at home and be a mommy and just be a human being for a minute, you know, without worrying about a hit record or anything of that nature. So she did me a favor. And I think that's why I loved it so much. And I told her that, too. I said, girlfriend, thank you. Um, and I guess doing a show called The Dinah Shore Variety Hour. And a young man named Clive Davis happened to be there. And we sat in my dressing room and talked. And who am I recording for? And I said, I'm not recording with anybody. I just got out of Warner Brothers. At any rate, um, he said, well, I just opened a new label. Would love for you to be a part of a roster. I said, let me give that some thought, because I really am ready to give this business up and use my credentials and teach. And to this day, what he said to me will continue to resonate with me. You may be ready to give the industry up, but the industry is not ready to give you up, were his words to me. And I said, okay, let's talk about this. Incredible. Your proudest moment in show business. Oh, winning both of those Grammys. Both of them? You won five of them, didn't you? No, I won two in one night. Oh, the two in one night, that's right. Yeah, that was, and that was so funny because <laughs> I had both of my babies with me. And we came in through the backstage area. And as I came in, they said, you just won. I said, just won what? <laughs> <laughs> And that was uh, for Deja Vu. And they took me out on the stage, and they put my babies in, in the seats down front. And so I received my first Grammy. I said, well, that's some kind of entrance, isn't it? And uh, took my seat. And I know I'll never love this way again, but Pop, Deja Vu is for R&B. And Pop was, I know I'll never love this way again. So I won two of them. The only other lady that did it was Ella Fitzgerald. The only other lady. <laughs> Just speechless again. <laughs> Last question, I promise. Yeah, promises, promises. <laughs> Good title for a song, huh? That's right. <laughs> what advice do you have to the person living in a place like East Orange, New Jersey? 
or anywhere they are in the world and they just can't even imagine what their future is going to be in the business and maybe that person who's going to New York every day and coming back trying to figure out a way to make it. What words of wisdom that you can pull from everybody who's given you all the advice throughout the years and all the wisdom that you have that you could share with our audience of what it takes to to go from the humblest beginnings and have the kind of amazing life and amazing career that you have had and are still having. You know, that that's something I I, I don't give advice because I don't believe anybody ever takes it, okay? I, I will encourage you. Well, you took the advice from Clive Davis. Well, it wasn't advice. It was a statement. So you're saying that you never took anybody's advice? No. Not even my parents. Really? No. And I I think it's because I was always told and given the parameter of being who I am. You know, with or without people in your ear saying, oh, you should, you should. Why should I? Why can't I not take that route? And that is basically what I tell all the youngsters, especially. You say, oh, I want to be like you. I said, no, you don't. You want to be like you. That's truly the answer be who you are do what you do you can't do what I did there's nobody in the world that can do what I do but me so do what you do and be the very best at it know that it is not something that is handed to you you know Billy Preston said it so well (laughs) something from nothing leaves nothing Okay, and everybody has aspirations. I had many. I was going to be the Van Cliburn, female Van Cliburn, and uh, I was going to be about Pavlova. I was on points before I sang, or even had thoughts of singing. And because I broke the tendon in my point foot, it transferred from my toes to my throat. So, <laughs> so I'm singing instead of dancing. But, you know, I think that is really the, the only thing that you can do is encourage people to excel in what they really, really know they can do. There's a lot of people who may think they can do what I do find out very quickly that they can't. I remember a little girl that decided she, I can sing the songs that you sing. I know I can do that. So said, okay, sing Promises for me. <laughs> and after she started and didn't know where she was going, <laughs> I said, oh, no, no, you can sing Promises. No, you can do what I do. And that's when she realized, okay, maybe I can't do that. Maybe I have to do something else. And that's the only thing I can tell you. Be who you are and do what you do. Dion Warwick, I am still speechless. <laughs> I am blown away. I am so honored that you came here and on this vacation time and spent time away from your family to sit down with me. And uh, this has been something I'll always remember as long as I live. And I hope Thank that's you. a long time. Thank you much. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get out the money. Drop that fancy car. All the people love you. You're going far. Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison 
Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business, I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever.